Uh, we're going to be today in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up and read along. It's a short chapter. Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are humbled that you have called us here to listen to you, to hear your voice through your holy scripture, through your word, to have our thoughts and our actions and our words and our intents shaped as Becky was praying by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for your work on the cross and in your resurrection, which have made all of these things accessible for us. We ask that you would now use your word to instruct us, to teach us how to be more like you, Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're winding down in Ecclesiastes. There are only 12 chapters if you haven't looked ahead. Um, and if you've been following along with us, uh, either every Sunday or maybe you're reading through Ecclesiastes during the week, that's a good practice if you know uh, that we're working through a particular book of the Bible, reading through that yourself uh, is a good practice. Um, and you might have noticed, if you've been familiarizing yourself, spending some time in Ecclesiastes, that chapter 11 sounds a little bit different. If you just heard it right then, you may not notice it quite as much. Um, but it is something of kind of a crescendo. There's a quickening of pace. There is a, a buildup of something happening here toward the end. Um, there's a sense of, of freedom, I would say even maybe of an excitement, which has not been the case for the first 10 chapters. Um, some of you might just be excited that we're almost done with Ecclesiastes, in fact. Um, but there is something more happening here. In fact, in, in only 10 verses, uh, the preacher is, is boiling down for us nearly everything that he's learned um, in all of his experiments, in all of his wonderings, he is uh, trying to distill for us what all of this 
might mean. And here in chapter 11, we're given a a fantastic first line. I think it's very poetic. Uh, Cast your bread upon the waters. This is a a, a forward thrust of a line. Um, It's also a little bit weird, right? What is cast your bread upon the waters? What does, like, I I think that sounds kind of poetic. That reads kind of poetically, but I don't, like, what in the world does that actually mean? You might be, I don't know, thinking that there's something sacramentally themed here, like bread and water. You might be like, talking about feeding fish, or what's, like, what's going on with this bread and water? Um, and what he's, what he's doing is he's pushing us really quickly into the theme that I would call an audacious generosity. Um, so what comes to mind when you hear the word cast, or when you read the word cast here? You know, you're probably thinking like, okay, this was written in ancient times. Um, you know that there's water around. You're probably thinking like casting a net or something, right? I know we have some fishermen in here. Has anybody ever thrown a cast net? Or maybe if you're not a fisherman, have you thrown a cast net? Um, probably most of us have like sat on a beach and watched some dude try to throw a cast net and he doesn't seem to be very good at it. Uh, at the very least, we can say that looks kind of like a lot of work and don't see him getting much out of it. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to gather it up in a very particular way, holding on to the line and folding your net and, and getting the lead line and all these things. It takes some intentionality in order to release it well and it to maybe do its job. So this is what we're, what we're seeing here with the term cast is an intentionality in giving, an intentionality in our generosity. Um, you might also wonder what, what does he, okay, what does he mean by bread? Um, pretty easily uh, we can see that in, in these ancient times, you know, bread was a staple. Nowadays, we, a lot of us don't necessarily look at it that way, right? Like we have at least three grocery stores within 10 minutes and thousands of things to eat. And we even know, hey, we can cut out bread from our diet or we can only eat certain types of bread. Back then, that's not the case. Bread is a staple. Bread is necessary for sustenance. And, um, you know, hence kind of the more modern slang of bread or dough, right? Meaning money or livelihood. Uh, Bread means something valuable. So this word picture here of casting your bread upon the waters is this idea of a generosity that is an intentional grabbing of something that is of value and releasing it with force and with intention. Now, the other part of that word picture is the waters. We're we're casting this valuable thing into something that's going to render it pretty difficult for us to know exactly how it's all going to play out. How is is this thing that I'm giving uh, going to maybe come back to me might be a question. So this audacious generosity will, will cause us should cause us to ask two questions. What do I have and where can I give it away? How does that sound to you? Like literally, not just, I got some clothes I can get to the thrift store or something like that. What do you have and where can you give it away? That only sounds good, that only feels good if we can read the verse in a certain way. And one of the most common ways that we'll read 
verses like this to help us feel good about it is to assume that these are just thoughts on some sort of wise investing. Uh, we wonder, okay, what are these Proverbs telling us uh, about investing so as to you know, minimize losses or maximize gains or whatever? Uh, the problem with that reading is that it really quickly turns into a, a works sort of mentality. It's trying to figure out what is, you know, what do the clouds mean? What, are, what is this natural world imagery? What do I need to do to make sure that like my investment's not under this tree that's just gonna fall and stay where it is? Um, ultimately, it's saying, how can I act in the right way? And to be clear, the, the preacher is talking about investing. Uh, lessons here may have their application in business dealings um, or economic decision making, but that's not chiefly what he's talking about. Because investing doesn't only mean, how do I put my money into something that's gonna give me more back? Investing can also mean to furnish, to supply, to provide, to give. Particularly, it can mean to give without getting caught up in what I'm going to get in return. And that's what the preacher is talking about here. Uh, you might be prone to disagree with me if you're looking at your Bible and you say, well, this next part of this verse says, for you will find it after many days. However, what I think we'll see is that this finding is the kind of finding that Jesus is talking about in the Gospels when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So in this, uh, this investing, a giving for a purpose, we might say, well, okay, so I'm just giving, I'm going to be generous. What's, what's the purpose? What's going on here? Uh, what makes a generosity, like the preacher is describing here, what makes me use the word audacious is that it's not anything about me. It's not anything about uh, the amount or the thing that I'm giving. It's actually about the generosity. It's about the giving itself. Let me flesh this out a little bit more. We have here the imagery of, of seed to sow. We have the ability to reap. We have bread. These agrarian terms, of course, would be familiar to the audience of his time. But more importantly, they are representative of the things that the preacher has been dealing with for the last 10 chapters. He's dealt with money, food and drink, the ability to work, power, pleasure, life. All of these things, no matter what they look like, no matter how much of them you have, are gifts given to you by a good God. You might be thinking critically, that's fine. Okay, that seems pretty basic. I know that the stuff I have are all gifts. That's fair enough, that's pretty basic, but let's, let's get back to the basics for a minute then. Picture for yourselves, picture in your mind, uh, what, how you got here. How did you get here today? Probably a car, right? I don't see 
room for a helicopter or anything of the sort, a car. Where did you come from? What did you eat to satisfy your grumbling belly? What did you drink to satisfy your thirst after a night's sleep? What did you drink to help you wake up and get on your kid's level at what is supposed to be like 8 o'clock, but it's 7 o'clock or, or whatever? That happened for me this morning. I thought I was getting up early enough, and it just, it wasn't. They were still up. Uh, how often do you look at these simple things, these things that you and I treat as foundations in our lives and realize that they really are gifts. We've done nothing to deserve them. We've worked for some of them, maybe. We've done nothing to deserve them. We've been warned now for many weeks by the preacher of the vanity, of the vaporous nature of chasing after these things as things to be attained or as things to be accumulated. You know, this is the, this is the works-mindedness. This is the selfish accumulation we can fall into is how can I use my money to get more money so I can be richer? How can I use my property in order to bring me more wealth so that I can have more stuff? How can I use my knowledge to gain more knowledge just so I can be the smartest person in the room maybe? These gifts we've seen are incapable of bringing us any ultimate satisfaction. Why are they incapable? Anybody? Just shout out. Why are they incapable of bringing us any satisfaction based on Ecclesiastes? We're going to die. I thought somebody would shout that maybe. We're going to die. You've heard it. Probably every week we've gone through Ecclesiastes. This is why these gifts are incapable in and of themselves of bringing us any true meaning. It's because we're going to die. But we've also been taught not to live in fear of or in the shadow of death, but rather to let it help us see how we can live life differently. So what do we make of these gifts? If he's saying hey, you have gifts and you should be generous with them. What do we make of them? What are we supposed to do with them? And the first thing I would say is that the gifts are the gifts. The gifts are the gifts. You might be like, come on, Ben, you can do, you can do better than that. <laughs> but I can't, and actually, neither can you. Because the gifts of our good God are not instruments for us to use in attempts to procure more gifts from God. Neither are they useful in trying to attain the favor of God. The gifts are the gifts. You got food, you got drink, you got work to do, you have a place to live, you have people to share your life with. These are the gifts. And the preacher has not casually exhorted us to eat, drink, and find enjoyment, these are the things we do because these are the things that have been given to us to do by God. You, know, you and I, again, have done nothing to deserve them, and we can gain nothing for ourselves in chasing after more of them. What the preacher is trying to show us now is not that everything is meaningless, but rather that everything is full of meaning even and maybe especially simple things. But wait, 
If you're, if you're reading through these first six verses, you might say, okay, if everything is meaningful, um, if I'm given gifts, then it seems like, okay, giving, I can get behind that. I believe in that. I can give. Uh, but if everything matters, then I should be really careful. I should be cautious in where and when and how I give my time, my energy, my money, how I open up my home to people, how I converse with people, who I even decide to converse with. And this is, this is typically the way that we would want to read this, isn't it? I don't know what's going to happen, so I should be really, really careful. But what we're being told, probably not surprising to you, is actually the opposite. Because we don't know what our earthly future holds, we ought to be wide open in our generosity. You and I are deluded, we are duped when we think that in our reasonableness, when we think that in our carefulness, we are somehow preserving a security which does not actually even exist. Everywhere that you turn, every way that I turn, there are risks, there are threats, there are multiple, seemingly unlikely, but not impossible, bad things that can happen. There's so much we don't know, so much we cannot know. Not trying to be morbid, but really, you could die at any moment. I could die at any moment. If that's true, what in the world are we holding on to, and why are we holding on to it? The problem with our risking, John Piper once wrote, is, is that we are all wired to risk for the wrong reasons. We are w wired to risk according to our own terms in ways and times that are ultimately not risky at all, and so they're not generous at all. We're wired to risk in a way that attempts maybe to follow after God's love and generosity, but is actually aimed at drawing attention to our own gratitude rather than pointing to the glory of Jesus. You ever seen, uh, everybody's heard about it, yeah, prepping, right? Preppers, you've seen, I haven't seen TV shows, but I know it's a thing. People are accumulating stuff, food, weapons, building bunkers, stuff like that. If you're a prepper, this is not about you. I'm not talking against you. But you and I, as children of God, are called to be preppers of a different kind. Rather than accumulating certain things or certain amounts of things in case of worst case scenarios, rather than passing on our delusions of security to our children, we are preparing to go out of this world the same way that we came in, with nothing. But in the meantime, in this already and not yet kingdom life of Jesus, we have lived in the middle of constant opportunity to audaciously give to others. This could potentially sound harsh. I hope I don't sound harsh. I'm not going to stand here and, and tell you where you need to be more generous. That's, that's not my job. Um, but because I love you, I have to point 
to God the Father, who spared nothing in his generosity in sending his only son, Jesus, to give the price for our stinginess, to give the price for our self-centeredness, to make it possible for us to also call God Father and approach him in every bit of closeness. Valley Hope, my brothers and my sisters, let me, let me say this. You are an incredibly generous people. You are a loving people. I am so, ah, man, I thought I was going to cry. I don't want to cry. <clears throat> I am so grateful to be a part of this body. I am grateful that my wife is a part of this body. I'm grateful. We are grateful to be raising our daughters among you, a grateful and generous people. <clears throat> I'm not looking to point out a fault of yours, okay? I'm preaching to myself, too. But while we can't approach the throne of God on our own, while we cannot in any way earn his favor, neither can we sit and do little Neither can we sit and wait for everything to seem safe and assume that we don't need to risk anything. And I'm not, I'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth. Like Jesus tells us, scriptures are really clear, that it is painful to follow after Jesus. There is no sugarcoating that. But he also assures us that in laying our lives down, we are not wasting our lives. Rather, by the sanctifying work of his Holy Spirit, we are being made more like Jesus in laying down our lives for each other. This pain does not preclude joy because we don't take joy in our stuff we don't even take joy in our church building. We take joy in Jesus Christ. We take joy in living in this life that he has created for us together. Deeply, messily, truly, uh, in deep sorrow, and in even deeper joy. In about two months, you, Valley Hope, we'll see some of these opportunities increase. You will have the opportunity to take joy in extra space in here, not by spreading out, but by choosing to sit close to one another. You will have the opportunity to take joy in seeing who comes in the room. You will have the opportunity to take joy in considering who you might invite to come meet Jesus you will have the opportunity to watch our father grow his family. Um, at most points in, in your life, you can wait for things to settle. You can look around for what appears to be ideal, for what most easily fits into your life's current circumstances. You can hope for things to just feel good and comfortable but that kind of waiting is no different than paralysis. That kind of waiting around stifles the development of an audacious generosity. 
verse 6 here, shows us how we are to respond to uncertainty and to a task at hand immediately and always with the effort of both hands, withholding nothing. Because you don't know what's going to happen. For the last 10 chapters, hearing about this vaporous nature of things, these things that, again, we have treated as foundations in our lives. The result has been, you know, vanity, meaninglessness, a, a strange, sometimes kind of foggy atmosphere where we're not quite sure how to make sense of things. But what the preacher is now telling us is that all this uncertainty is supposed to spur us on in the light of the sun rather than just stupefy us in fog. And this is, this is a lot. I get it. Uh, I've, man, I've only preached like six times or something. I feel like half the time it's been on greed or generosity or something. So when I say I'm preaching to myself, I'm kind of like, what is going on here? It's like, how much more am I supposed to give? Because even if you want to give all of yourself in this kind of way, how can you keep doing it? You need something to keep you going. Um, and I'll be real with you about something from this past week for me. Um, I had a span of time where I was just super tired. I was tired and I was down. And man, I just, I wished that there was someone next to me to pour something into me. You know, I was, feel, I was feeling really empty. And that's real. But for me this past week, I was feeling empty because I got stuck on what I get. I got stuck on what I get. Like Peter, I took my eyes off of Jesus for a moment and quickly found out I could not handle the situation. I was distracted by, you know, tiredness, by, like all of us have, tiredness, a literally, literally unending to-do list. But you know what? The next morning, when I was still in kind of a funk, I, I went to Jesus, and I just did what he sought me to do. I asked him to keep me close. I just said, Jesus, keep me close. And what do you think he did? He filled me up, overflowing, not, not with more money in our bank accounts, not with more space in our house to offer to people, not with more time to get that to-do list done, not with more time to spend with people that I love, but he filled me up with his love and therefore with his joy. I'm not the most joyful person, I know that, but he is, he is teaching me. If we are going, the point is this, if we're going to give in this sacrificial way in all areas of our life, we need something to invigorate us. We're going to get tired. What does the preacher tell both the old and the young alike in these verses? He says to rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice means to take joy in. Whether you 
are young or old or somewhere in between, we are to take joy in what has been allotted to us. What's more joyful than youth, right? You know, there's this feeling of invincibility that you think you can do anything you want to do. We've got, it's appropriate that we would have even more of our youngest people in here with us today. Pay attention to them. Pay attention to the very youngest when they come in pretty shortly. They can hardly contain their vigor. They can hardly contain their joy. I don't see them squirming too much, which tells me maybe I haven't talked too long yet. But the ways of, of the kids' hearts, the ways of their eyes are pretty clear, aren't they? They want to play. They want to eat. They want to have fun. They want to take joy in things. But this vigor and this joy that he's talking about is not exclusively for the people who have had fewer years wear on their lives. It's for the bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, to be sure. But it's also an exhortation to any of us who yet have blood flowing through our veins. How do we keep our youthfulness alive? By enjoying God. By being filled by him, by giving to others. This, these are the ways uh, to find a joy that will invigorate the soul. When the preacher writes of the days of darkness and the judgment of God, he isn't suddenly dousing an excitement that he's been trying to build up. What he's saying is pretty simple. He's saying all your days matter and they are fleeting. This is perhaps the surprise of Ecclesiastes is that everything is not meaningless. Everything matters. Every day matters. Everything that we've seemed to be reading in the first 10 chapters is being flipped on its head here in chapter 11. Rather than meaninglessness and despair, we're being shown meaning and joy. In God's judgment, he doesn't want to bash you over the head, but what he would see is that you and I have given everything as we have been given everything. He will, he will fix all of the things that we have not been able to fix in our strivings. Our God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The one, the one God has invited you into this everything kind of life. He's invited you with this audaciously generous gift of Jesus. The ultimate generosity, the ultimate gift. And the good news in all of this talk about risk is that there is ultimately no risk because the one who laid down his life for us has secured our eternal future. Jesus has done this in risking himself. If I can talk about him that way, that's not quite right. But he has done this in humbling himself to the lowly form of a human, the most youthful image of all, a baby. Jesus risked and suffered 
to a degree that you and I will never risk or suffer in order to spare us, in order to spare us from having to worry about securing anything, in order to spare us from a death that has any finality to it. He has secured for you and I all the good things that are truly needful. Zach Eswine uh, writes in his book, Recovering Eden, the footsteps or ways that Jesus lived resemble the God who wants us to navigate life with the language that can handle it. He's talking about terms like gain and loss and what they really mean. For a moment, we can remind ourselves of the Gospels and what we see and hear in them of Jesus. Is Jesus being sappy, sentimental, and naive when he talks about loving enemies and the chronically ill? His poetic language and parables are dressed with the earthy and the down home. Jesus is taking us into all the spooky hallways and messes of life. And he teaches us, his disciples, to follow him there. And doesn't this same Son of God go to the cross, the place of injustice and cruelty, where death seems meaningless and pleasures cannot satisfy? And from there, he says, it is fulfilled. Christ is the gain that the world cannot provide. You and I are not prone, I'll speak for myself, I think I can speak for you probably, we are not prone to audacious generosity. We are not prone to laying down our lives for others. And even when we buy into thinking this way, we are quickly, quickly distracted. Much less are we given to engaging the actions of our lives in this kind of generosity. The good news for you, whether you don't know Jesus at all, uh, whether you know him but you struggle to want to follow him, whether you desire deeply to follow him but can never seem to keep moving, the good news is that you don't have to do any of that stuff yourself. Jesus, the creator, the sustainer and redeemer has come to us and made nothing meaningless. Rather, in his life and death and resurrection, he has fulfilled all things. He has done this in part to release you from the stranglehold of uncertainty and from the paralyzing fear of failure. So my encouragement to you is to spend your life as Jesus did, living and giving, not just trying to not die. In Christ Jesus, we see the true son of David who was promised long ago, who has eternally existed and therefore eternally holds all of your security in his hands. When you don't know where he is, when you're not sure where to find him, he has come to you.
He has come to you with gifts of love and with eternal joy. He has come to invite you into the audaciously generous life of God the Father himself. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I am not as grateful as I should be. I am not as generous as I ought to be. But I trust in your word. I trust in Jesus Christ, the creating word of God, who has promised and has proved through his life and through his death and through his resurrection that I am not alone. I pray for the people in this room that you would speak your gospel to their hearts, that you would release them from the fear of failure, that you would release them by the power of your Holy Spirit from the stranglehold of uncertainty and anxiety. God, would you give us wisdom to know how we might be even dimly as generous as you have been. I pray for those, Lord Jesus, who do not know you in this room, that you would once again extend your loving arms, that you would hold them, that you would hug them, that they may not even realize it, that you would draw them in to an everything kind of life, May we praise you, may we glorify you, may we worship you today and every day for your good gifts. May we enjoy them and may we willingly share them with everyone in every opportunity that we get to. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your good gifts. We love you. We love you.